Hi, everyone. It's great to be with you today, wherever you are and you're connecting with us. Welcome. I'm Lynn Kitchens, and we are in the book of Hebrews, learning that Jesus is greater than everything. We've seen why Jesus is greater than angels. We've seen why Jesus is greater than Moses. Today, we'll begin to look at why Jesus is the greatest high priest. Why do we need a high priest? Look on your verse sheet at the top. Isaiah tells us, actually on your outline. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. Our praise is that all we really need is Jesus to bring us to God. Everything that separates us from God, he takes care of. That's our praise. So many, many years ago, actually over 30 years ago, Ted and I were keeping our niece. She was about two at the time. She had really never been separated from her parents, and we were to keep her a week. So you can imagine, she was overwhelmed. She was traumatized. And we all kind of laugh about it now, but at the time, we were so sad because she literally sort of cried all day, kind of in a little whimpering sound, walking so forlorn around. So here's what she would do. She would pick up things in my house and say, this is all I need. (laughs) And then she would take it to bed at night and keep it and sleep with it and tell us the next day, this is for my parents. I'm going to give it to them when they come. And we'd be like, okay, okay, that went on for the week. So you can imagine each day, it didn't matter what the object was, a pen, a book, a Cheeto, (laughs) a Play-Doh. It was all brought to her bed. That's all I need. And I'm going to give this to my parents when I see them. So sad. Um, One day, Ted thought, my my husband, okay, I'm going to take her to get a donut. Let's just... Let's just go get donuts. They'll lift her spirits. So we all went to get a donut. She didn't need her donut. This is all I need. (laughs) We're like, okay. She comes home. She takes it to bed that night, sleeps with it, adds it to her pile, which was growing in the corner of her bed. And I know what you're thinking right now. You let her take a donut into her bed at night? Yes, we did. You would have, too. (laughs) It was uh, sad, and uh, we wanted to make her happy. We did notice this, though. Each morning, the donut was mysteriously smaller. (laughs) Really? (laughs) She took one bite a morning. Guess what? She had that pile on her bed, and the minute her parents got home, she never thought about it again. Her parents were all she really needed. When it comes to having a relationship with God, Jesus is all we really need. Even though we create our own little pile of, I'm going to follow this rule, and I'm going to go to this church, and I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to have these rituals, and I'm going to memorize these verses, and this is going to get bigger and bigger, it won't take away the sin that separates us from God. Jesus is who we need, a great high priest who is able to atone for our sins. So I want to talk a little bit about high priests right now. 
The high priest was a supreme religious leader of the Israelites. The office of the high priest was hereditary and was traced from Aaron, the brother of Moses, from the tribe of Levi. Aaron was the first high priest in the wilderness. And the high priest's unique privilege was to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement. That would be called Yom Kippur. He would sprinkle the blood of a bull and a goat on the mercy seat, which was on the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where God's presence dwelled, and he would atone for Israel's sins. And even though the high priest was to be physically without any kind of defect, physically holy in his conduct, he still had to atone for his own sins as well when he went into the Holy of Holies. And so I don't know about you, but I don't want to place my eternal destiny in the hands of a sinner. And praise God, we do not have to do that. Look at 4.14 in the book of Hebrews. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Okay, this is a neat thing. Maybe circle the word great there in your Bible. This is the only place you'll see the word great before high priest because only Jesus is the great high priest. He has a better title. He was not just another high priest. He was a great one. And then from this one verse, we can see a lot of the reasons why he is the great one why he's the better one. The old covenant high priest had to pass through three areas to make the atoning sacrifice. We have a slide of that. Okay, so you can see, first the high priest would be at the outer court, then he would go into the holy place, and then the smaller one is the holy of holies, where we just saw the slide where he's over the mercy seat. Jesus made the perfect blood sacrifice, and to do that, afterwards, he passed through three areas as well. He passed through superior areas. He passed through the heavens themselves as our great high priest. He passed through our atmosphere. He passed through space, and then he went into heaven itself. This is our high priest. This would also mean he's ministering for us in the heavenly tabernacle made by God, not where the other high priests did their own earthly tabernacle duties. And did you notice in this verse, it says Jesus, the son of God, when he speaks about the high priest, you know, Jesus is a name for a man. Son of God is the name for deity. So as our great high priest, Jesus was both God and man, this is our confession. This is our salvation. This is what separates Christianity from all other faiths, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven, came in the flesh to a little town called Bethlehem to be the mediator between us and our God creator. And you know, throughout history, there have been a lot of people who claim that they're the mediator between us and God. But if you look for them today, their bones will be in the ground. The true mediator, the great high priest, he sits on a throne. 
up in heaven ministering for us, our great high priest. You know, the disciple John, he walked with this man named Jesus. He recognized after three years he was the Son of God. He wrote this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld it. We beheld his glory as of the only son of his father. And I think John would say he is as glorious in his Godhead as he was gracious in his manhood. That was our great high priest. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. As our mediator, Jesus sits at God's right hand doing that work even now. Look at Hebrews 8. Now the point is what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And because of that, our hope isn't placed here. Our hope isn't placed on people, pastors, churches, traditions. We look away from the frailty of man and the man-made things of earth. We look up. We know there's so much better. We know there's so much more above This is where our hope comes from. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, But the things that are unseen are eternal. We are freed from that which is earthly. Our faith is characterized by that which is heavenly. And it's so sad because there are a lot of religious people that aren't really free. Their focus is on things of the earth, even a religion on the earth. Yeah, I remember a wonderful woman many, many years ago I was talking with, and we were started talking about spiritual things, and we were talking about the faith. And she stopped and said, you know, you and I, we believe all the same things. Everything we believe is the same. The only difference is I confess my sins to a religious leader, and you confess your sins to God. And I thought, what a difference. It made my heart sink. She was relying on the earthly to take her to the heavenly. We can live our lives on earth here confidently because we have a great high priest who's up there and he's interceding for us daily. Look at Romans 8. Go up above the second Corinthians. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed 
is interceding for us, and he prays for us. He intercedes for us because he is a sympathetic high priest. Let's look at that in verses 15 and 16. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The one who serves us well has been where we are. That is an amazing truth. He knows our temptations. He knows our weaknesses in every respect, this verse says. In every respect means in all ways. But more than that, the word sympathize here means feels. Not only does he know our temptations, he has felt them. He feels what we feel. He's felt that pain when we're having trials and heartaches in our life. He has felt that pain. Look at Isaiah 53. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You know, that old hymn is true, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to acclaim, bearing shame, scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. He can enter into the distress that temptations bring us because he has felt it himself. And we know the one who fully resists temptation, they can know the full extent of the force of that temptation. I thought about Jesus in the wilderness. Forty days. Being tempted to eat the bread that Satan's holding out to him. You know, turn this stone into bread. In those 40 days, three times Satan tempted Jesus to disobey God's will. Then in Gethsemane, think how Jesus felt that fear of the cross to the point of his sweat being mixed with his blood. He told the disciples himself, my soul is grieved to the point of death as he faced the cross. And he felt along with those physical things, he felt rejection, loss, desertion, ridicule. And on that cross, he felt the full force of our sin as our high priest. But here's the truth that seals our atonement. He didn't give in to any of those temptations. Jesus never sinned. If he had sinned, his atonement for us would not have been a sufficient one. How could he have guarded us from God's wrath if he deserved God's wrath as well? 
Old Testament priests were supposed to be godly, but they were still sinners. So when they offered sacrifices, it was only delaying the judgment of God. But when God placed our sins on his son, who was sinless, God's wrath was perfectly satisfied once and for all. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus faced temptation in every respect as we do, but did not sin when we come to him in our need, we will find his throne, he said, to be a throne of grace. I don't think you'll see that expression anywhere else in the Bible. Isn't that a great description of being with Christ, a throne of grace. It depicts God's sovereign rule, throne, and grace, his mercy, his kindness. It's a throne, but it's upholstered in sympathy. So that when we come to him, this is a place where the loyal subject who approaches his king is at the same time a needy child who is approaching his heavenly father. That's a throne of grace. So we're confident in his compassion, but we're also confident in his power at the same time. Let's look at some of the qualifications of a high priest. Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. Okay, so the Jewish high priests, they were ordained for men, acted on behalf of men, stood in the place of men, and this was a divine appointment. No one could be born and say, I'm going to work my way up to become a high priest. I'm going to do a bunch of good things. They're going to call me to be the high priest. No, this was an appointment made by God. In their calling was the obligation to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, and that would mean the gifts would be thanksgiving offerings. Uh, those would be burnt offerings. Those would be grain offerings, thanking God. The sacrifices would mean the blood offerings to atone for sins, and in the Old Testament, offerings were done every single day. And the high priest was called to have compassion. I love that. They were to care about the wayward. They were to care about the ignorant. They were to care about the sinners. They would know those people because they were one of those people. A high priest was trying to be holy, but a high priest was still a sinner and wrestled with his own weaknesses. And so before they made sacrifices for the people, they sacrificed for their own sins. Okay, so qualifications of a high priest, appointed by God, offer God um, gifts and sacrifices, have compassion on the weak, and offer those sacrifices for sins and for their sins. How does our great high priest measure up to these qualifications? He's greater than. 
We already recognized he was without sin. His sacrifice was to cover only our sins. Secondly, a priesthood had a termination date because the high priest died. Jesus' priesthood has no end. Look at verses 5 and 6. So Christ didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So right here, the author of Hebrews is quoting two, two a psalm, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and they're God's own words about his coming son. So the first one, you are my son, I've begotten you, is foretelling about the incarnation of Christ. The second one, you're a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, it's foretelling Jesus' priesthood. And they're both divine appointments by God, just like the other high priest had that divine appointment. But we can see Jesus' was greater. He was ordained by God to permanently represent his people before the throne with a single sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 10. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, tells us here he was ordained a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Who in the world is Melchizedek? <laughs> I'm not going to share a lot about him because we're going to learn more about him in the weeks ahead. We can find Melchizedek in Genesis 14. He was offering Abraham bread and wine and a blessing after Abraham had just won a great battle. But we also know he was a king of Salem, which was a Gentile and a pagan territory back then. We also know that he was a priest of God Most High. Genesis tells us that as well. And we think, wait a minute, we just went through the qualifications of a high priest, and he doesn't fit the bill here, this Melchizedek guy. His priesthood was similar in some ways to Jesus' priesthood. At some point in time, God had mysteriously raised up this man, appointed him a priest, from a foreign people group to accomplish God's purposes. And so his priesthood, Melchizedek's, was different than others in the future. And um, God did the same thing with Jesus. His was different as well. Like Melchizedek, it was born out of the sovereign purposes of God. Also in Hebrews 7, we'll learn that there are no records of Melchizedek's birth or his death, so his priesthood was perpetual, and uh, we can see that that's true with Jesus. God appointed Jesus, like Melchizedek, to be both a priest and a king forever. And we see here that Jesus' entire time on earth involved God's appointment involved the heavenly plans of his fathers. And he continues to do the plans that God had for him while he's in heaven. Father has ordained what Christ has done, 
what he is doing and what he will continue to do on our behalf. So when Jesus ascended back to his Father, he wasn't done with us. He's with us. He's sanctifying us. He's helping us. He's counseling us. He's guiding us. We were not left here to fend for ourselves. We were not left here to do legalistic things, to try and stay in Christ's good favor. He is our great high priest waiting for us to come to him. You know, too often, even though he's there for us, we go to everything but God in our pain. It's so sad. I know I do that. It's easy to fall into that habit. You know, it made me think about my son, Tyler, who was probably, I don't know, 17 years old. And he had just come out of the hospital. Tyler was in the hospital off and on in his teens for some hard things. He had been at Cook's for over two weeks for a lung issue. Got him home. He was only home a couple weeks, and then he was with a friend in a car, and the friend was crossing Camp Bowie. It was raining. They didn't see a car. A car smashed into them on Tyler's side where he was sitting. So he gets out of the car. It is t- the car is totaled. How these two young men walked out of that car is a gift from God, our amazing God. But Tyler broke his hand, and he didn't want to have a broken hand. He just got out of the hospital. <laughs> he wasn't going to keep being sick or hurting. And so the doctor made the mistake of saying to him, now I'm going to make a cast for your hand. I could make it where it's removable so when you take showers... Tyler goes, oh, yeah, removable. Give me a removable cast. Tyler goes home. I never see him put the cast on. I go, get that cast on your hand. And he goes, yeah, it'll be okay. The next day he goes to school. I know he never wears his cast. I go, get the cast on your broken hand. And he looks at me and says, it's going to be okay, Mom. I had a talk with God. I said, well, now you're having a talk with your mom. I want you to wear the cast. He, he barely wore that cast for two weeks. We're going back to the doctor. I'm totally ashamed and embarrassed, thinking, what, what is the doctor going to say? We get in there, and the doctor x-rays his hand and said, I have never seen a break heal this quickly. <laughs> he calls other doctors into the room. Look at this break. Tyler's looking at me. Wow, and I'm not advocating don't do what the doctor says. I just think it was amazing that Tyler said, it's going to be okay. I've talked to God about it. I think he said to God, I can't be sick anymore. (laughs) I don't want a broken hand. It was amazing. We have so many broken things in our lives. We go to our high priest who lives to intercede for us, who feels what we feel who knows what's inside of us and cares about it. That's where we go. He's our eternal and great, merciful high priest, and we talked about, but he's also our powerful king forever and ever, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is God's plans for him. And Jesus said, I'm 
with you always? I'm always with you. Believing this is what brings us that peace that passes understanding. It gives us the strength to live in a crazy world. It gives us the strength and the ability to do that. So how else is Jesus' priesthood greater than? Let's look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so remember one of the qualifications was that a high priest had gentleness and kindness to the weaker people. Did Jesus do that? You know, we just have to look at Gethsemane. We just have to look at the cross and realize we can witness our answer. He willingly walked a path God ordained for him as the final sacrifice for sin because of his compassion for us, because of how much he loves us. You know, some people believe those verses I just read are about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was anticipating that terrible price of bearing our sins, facing God's judgment in the flesh, and so he felt that great despair connected to that sacrifice. We know from the Gospels, though, that Jesus prayed not his will, but God's will would be done. This was his reverent submission to God. But that shadow of the cross was still on him, covering his heart. It didn't take away that terror. And so Jesus cried and prayed and he wept. But he did this in faith to the one able to save him from death. You know, I'm thinking how he was looking suffering and torture in the face, but even then he was displaying faith in the Father concerning death, and he prayed according to his faith. This was his offering. This was a sacred offering to God. You know, some people believe that these are the words that Jesus prayed when he was on the actual cross. We have a slide of that. So that in the midst of physically dying, he was experiencing this inward and outward pain, and he would pray that Jesus, that he prayed that God would save him, but save him from the ultimate power of death. And God answered that prayer by raising him from the dead. And this was the proof that he accepted the sacrifice of his son. It was a sacrifice that was the source of our eternal salvation. You know, Melchizedek, Melchizedek offered bread and wine and blessing to Abraham after he won a big battle. Jesus offers us bread and wine and blessing after he won his battle over sin. The bread is his broken body. The wine is the blood he shed. The blessing is the eternal salvation he gives us if we receive all this in faith. 
We learn the depths of our obedience by how we respond to suffering. You know, Jesus didn't need to learn obedience. We know he was obedient. He always obeyed. He also didn't need to be made perfect in his nature. His nature was already perfect. But as Jesus experienced these trials to the cross, all the trials associated with his existence as he walked on this earth, he learned what it meant to obey God during those things. He experienced the truest meaning of obedience in terms of the suffering that he just endured obediently. And in that way, he was made perfect for the role of our high priest later on. Our great high priest's sacrifice brings us into the presence of a satisfied God. Look at 1 Peter 4. Or 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Greater than the other high priests, he only had to offer the one sacrifice, and then he yelled out, It's finished. Sin on earth is finished with its power and dominion. Come to me and have your sins removed. And at this point, the author, I think he was so excited telling these things to the Hebrew people, and he's going on about here's how the high priest, and all of a sudden he just stops at this point in the word here. He's got a warning. This is the third warning in the book of Hebrews. He's saying, danger's ahead for you people. Some of you people are facing great danger. And we're going to see he's basically saying this to them. What is wrong with you people? How long have you been walking in truth, but you act like you're babies? You want us to keep telling you the same things over and over that you already know? You don't want to do the hard thing and move forward in your faith? You can't comprehend anymore what we're telling you because you aren't trying? And if you can't comprehend, what's going to happen to your faith? It's the danger of dullness. Your Bible may say it's about the sluggish in heart. We might say it's about complacency. It's about laziness. Look at verse 11. The author says about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, we can learn what the spiritually mature looks like here. First of all, they cannot hear. Okay, one of the blessings in my life right now is that my dad comes to church with me. If you told me growing up that there'd be a time when my dad would sit next to me in church and he didn't ever go to church, I would not have believed it. He's 90, and he comes to church, sits next to me. But this week, he forgot his hearing aid. And so in the middle of the service, he says very loudly as if we're on a train or something, 
So what's happening now? <laughs> okay. That's the problem with the Hebrews here. Great things are going on. Teaching is going on. Growth is going on. But they're so dull, they say, so what's happening here? So they tell them, but they don't hear it because they don't want to do it. They don't want to think it. They don't want to study it. They don't listen to the answer. They don't want to really digest the truth, meditate on it, or live by it. And so that leads into the next problem. The spiritually immature cannot teach. We are all teachers. If you know the Lord, you're a teacher because you're supposed to pass on the truth that you know to whoever God puts in your path, your children, your friends, your relatives, where you go. That's what he calls us to do. Many believers, obviously, that this author's writing to were not doing that. And today, many people don't do that as well. And I think the congregation had just become intellectually sluggish just by their own negligence. And what will happen in our world if we allow that to happen to us? We just look out there in the world and see, you know, it needs more truth. Needs us to pass along the truth that we know. The spiritually mature cannot learn. Their hearts had grown indifferent to the meat of Scripture. They wanted milk and milk and milk again. Isn't it so much easier to drink milk than chew meat? That's what they liked. They wanted the basic oracles of God. And the author here is using an expression there that means the ABCs learned as a child. They wanted the ABCs of the gospel that they'd heard over and over and over again, and that's all they wanted to hear. They were like school children who couldn't pass into the next grade because they didn't assert themselves. When I was doing my student teaching for high school, I was in a summer school, and one of the classes they gave me were kids who had all uh, been failing. So that was a fun class to teach, especially in summer school. And so I just, I felt sorry for them. I did everything I could to try to get them to pass. Um, but they weren't asserting themselves. And so one day I was going to give them a test the next day. So I took a sheet of paper. I wrote every question on the test. And I said, let's fill in these blanks. And we sat in the class and filled in all the blanks. And I said, this is tomorrow's test. Take it home, and you'll get a 100. And then the bell rang, and they all dropped them on their desk and ran out the door. And they all failed the test, and many of them failed the class. They didn't want to assert themselves. Because the Hebrews weren't willing to study, they couldn't pass into the next grade of faith. They were unskilled in righteous truth. The spiritually immature cannot discern. It only makes sense. If we don't know the Word of God, um, we don't know right from wrong. We don't know true from false. We don't know good from bad. Maybe you guys have seen that Geico commercial that was on actually in the last Cowboy game that is so funny. 
It's these teens at night running in fear through the woods, something frightened them, and they come out in an opening, and there's a house all lit up, and then there's a car running next to it, empty, and they run up, where should we go? And someone says, let's go to the house. No, let's get in that running car and drive away. <laughs> no, let's go in that old shed where those chainsaws are hanging on the wall. And they run in there. Later, the commercial, they come running out, and you hear someone say, let's run and hide in the cemetery. No discernment. And that is sort of what happens to us. Think about it. Without knowing God's ways, we are just running in the dark from one danger to another. That's where the world is right now. That's why we have to pass on the truths that we know, and we have to study so we know what those truths are. The author gives us the solution to all of this, and he says we're trained to discern good and evil by constant practice. We become advanced scholars in Christ's school when we sit in the front row of discipline. You know, didn't he used to sit? I would sit in the back row when I didn't care about the class. But when I thought, i got to get a good grade in here, sit in the front row and get a good grade and do the discipline that it takes. We won't drift into being spiritually mature. It takes discipline, and then it takes obedience to what we know. It takes chewing on that meat, opening up our ears. It takes perseverance. It takes a plan, and you guys already all have a plan, or you wouldn't be here in this room. You have a plan, and Women in the Word is part of it. Let's look at 2 Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The author says, I want you guys to know this. Because your commitment to Christ is in danger. That's a warning the Word of God is giving us today. We can heed that warning for our lives. There is danger in dullness. But we have this great high priest who can give us every opportunity to experience an abundant life with him at our side, with his help, we find him in here and in here, and he is all we need. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We are amazed at the kind of God you are. We ask that you teach us how to come to you more and more, to know you in your word, to pass those truths on, and your name to be lifted high. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.